Welcome to Harvest to Pour, the business of beverages, with your host, Matthew Schiff. This is the podcast for all of those who are involved in the agriculture all the way to the distribution of beverages. And now your host, Matthew Shipp. Hello and welcome to Harvest of Four. I'm your host, Matthew Shipp, and today I am here with Gail Kapertrawhite, the founder of Pivot North Consulting. How are you doing, Gail? I'm good. How are you? Great. So let us know a little bit about Pivot North and kind of how you got to where you are now. What what were the questions you were asking yourself to create uh, this business you have? This I think you called it from menu to market. Go ahead and let us know about that. Yes. So I started out in hospitality. So I've my career start in the food industry started out really early as restaurants and catering. And then that catering side, we were in Seattle. I, that's where my catering company started. And we had a client of Microsoft was a client and they wanted these frozen meals, these little grab and go meals and gluten free variations for their cafes. So that's how I got into manufacturing. And so we were manufacturing for them that expanded. We opened up a facility for frozen food manufacturing. And so prior to COVID, my business was really catering, frozen food manufacturing and, and distribution, things like that. We became a white label manufacturer for several of the Taylor brands, private label. So that was kind of before COVID. And then after COVID, catering went, you know, to died. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So catering's back now, thankfully. But my, I really was looking at how can we bring all of this experience that we've had in getting products, first of all, the hospitality industry and going from that to having products in the grocery stores, because it really allowed us to have a parallel revenue stream that we could rely on during COVID when catering died, right? Like catering went away, but we still had revenue from our frozen foods. So looked at that and thought, what can we do for the restaurant industry too, where they have these really great products, they have great customer experiences, people love them. How can we help them bring some of that restaurant experience to the grocery store? And the big challenge is that restaurant owners who are really good at what they do wouldn't necessarily have the knowledge or team or anyone headcount, any of those things to be able to do this, right? It's a, there's a lot of moving parts to getting a product into the grocery store. So we so basically developed this system called Menu to Market, where we take products that are, we create products based on popular menu items. So we work with a restaurant brand. We find food, beverage items on their menus that they're really known for. Then we take it through an R&D process and build this product. So we're finding the packaging. We're making sure it can be either shelf stable or frozen. We're um, finding a co-packer to manufacture it. <laughs> That's, that takes us a while sometimes. Um, yeah. and we're, and then we're working with those co-packers and setting up distribution channels. All of that is kind of that R and D phase. Then as soon as we have something to sell, we take that product and we are the broker and we become, we get it into, we sell it into the retail grocery stores. We handle all of the distribution. We handle all of the ongoing management with those co-packers and production and sourcing ingredients and everything that's required to get that product produced reliably and scale. So, um, part of our process, at, once it's on the store shelves, is we have merchandising teams and brand managers who will make sure that we are being a really good partner to our retailers so that we can keep sales growing and keep opening doors. So that's the menu to market system that we built. And it's really based on everything that we were doing kind of for ourselves before COVID and now created this 
environment that allows restaurants to do this very basically they can outsource the whole thing to us so all they have to do is approve decisions they still have control they still make those decisions of yes no or maybe but but they don't have to have any additional headcount they don't have to have any special expertise in cpg and they don't have to worry about it as part of their day-to-day so this is a complete done for you process we call it fully managed (laughs) <laughs> fully managed. All right. Fully and that's about that. that, that, that okay. The G, yeah. So, so this is the whole menu to market system that you handle within house. You really take that, that piece from the owner or whoever, or whoever's coming up with this product. Uh, how now I have, like I said, the, uh, the harvest of poor. So when I talk about uh, the harvest, I'm talking about sourcing the material and then the, the um, through the making their own product uniquely theirs. And then the marketing is kind of the poor. So mm-hmm. you kind of span almost all of it, maybe not sourcing of the, of what they, because they created what they created. That's there. Now they have something and they, they, and they know they have something, but you said you managed to say they lack that knowledge to kind of get it to, to the grocery shelves, for instance. Now I know there are sales brokers that help with that between who's producing it and getting on the shelves. Uh, where, where would a, you know, beverage industry owner that has something they want to get on the grocery shelves, a roastery, a, a brewery, winery, where, where do they kind of run into some problems with the, uh, the, the sales brokers or the, the representatives that get these on the shelves? There's a lot of different ways that can go wrong. So I would say if you're, if you're starting out at the harvest side of it, a lot of these, uh, Specialty brands, beverage brands, restaurant brands, any, anybody that has kind of this special product, they are often using special ingredients, either ones mm-hmm. that they've created themselves or they're sourcing from, you know, proprietary sources. They've created it. There's a lot of different times when you really run into these proprietary signals that say, I know this is going to be a tougher deal to go into mass manufacturing. So that requires some R&D work. That can be done by the brand themselves, or they can use outsource that to a co-packer or R&D firm. We have a team that does that for our client products. But that piece is really important to source all of those ingredients or recreate them in the manufacturing environment because they have to be able to be at scale and in bulk. So from that piece of it, your broker doesn't have anything to do with it. Brokers don't normally get involved until you have a finished product. Mm-hmm. So now you have, you know, now you're we're dealing with a co-packer who's going to produce your product before that even relationship can even start. You got to have your packaging in place. What's that going to look like? So that's going to depend. Is this a refrigerated item, frozen? Is it shelf stable? Uh, what are all those different components? That's going to drive your relationship with your co-packer because certain co-packers can't pack different kinds. You know, they're, they're kind of have a lane for their packaging styles as well. So now you have a relationship with a co-packer and they're going to produce the food. Now you need a, a way to distribute it or get it sold, right? So now you got to get it off that dock from the manufacturer and into distribution. That's where your broker will come in, where they're going to help sell that product into different channels. And it's the brand's responsibility, if they don't have somebody doing it for them, to get from point A to point B. So how are you going to get that product from the co-man's dock? Get it to either your warehousing or to a distribution center you know, what's that process, that distribution point? That's an important piece of this puzzle. And then now you have a broker and the broker is going to, is the one who basically gets those relationships going. They get you the space on the shelf. Mm-hmm. They get Perfect. you that, 
I call it real estate, basically. <laughs> you're on the shelf now, you're in the stores, now it's now it's there. Now there are some copat brokers who will support you with merchandising and selling from the shelf and, and helping to grow. But the majority of brokers are there for maintenance. So they get you on the shelf and then it's up to you to do anything more with it. If you're using a distributor like UNFI or Kihi or any of those, then those distributors will have sales teams and those sales teams are technically going to sell your product into more stores and into other channels. Um, Again, that's really, you're, you're kind of under their control if you're relying on that. So my recommendation is that the brand, in our case, we do this for our client. But if it's just a brand trying to do this on their own, they're, they're going to need a strategy for selling merchandising, growing accounts, getting more you know retailers on board, opening those doors, because this doesn't just happen naturally. Just because your product is great, this requires a lot of push to open these doors and get your product moving. And once it's on the shelf, that's just day one. Like that's the day one. Everything else matters after that is how are you going to push sales? How are you going to support the retailer? In, in our strategy, we look at the retailer shelf as a piece of real estate. I am going to drive traffic to that shelf. I do not count on that retailer to do it. Retailers do a great job, right? They have beautiful stores. They keep the place clean. They, they drive in traffic. They attract consumers because they have a lot of variety. The, the retailers do what they do. And they're a, a wonderful partner. We love them. <laughs> but um, once your product is on the shelf, you, you can't expect that retailer to always have your shelf stocked. You can't expect them to do anything beyond have it sitting on the shelf. That's what they do is they put it on the shelf. They give you that space. So we take an approach where we're going to do in-store demos very, very regularly. We're going to be having merchandisers into those stores every single week to stock shelves, make sure they're beautiful, make sure all of our um, shelf talkers or window clings, whatever we're using, any out-of-aisle merchandising, everything is placed and perfect and beautiful and clean and stocked. That's our job. I, that's how I look at it. If you're using a distributor, or many times most brokers do not do that. Like that's not a normal course of you have to pay extra for that or you have to find a partner who will do it. All right. That's, that's, I like the uh, treating the shelves as real estate. That's really cool. And if I hope uh, if any, if any, we have any of our listeners or, or, industry owners in, in, in this in this world, I hope they just listen to that last pipe because you just laid out step-by-step step of things to expect and things to see as you go through and you know you have a product that can do something and you really want to get it out into that grocery or into that restaurant. Um, I, I think you laid it really, out really well, Gail. So I hope they were listening or else you re rewind and listen again. <laughs> so what do you see as, there's a lot of stepping stones there and there's a lot of hazards along the way. What do you see as, like some of the biggest hazards that people run into along the, along this way, along that path. I think distribution is a, is a big hiccup point for people, for brands that are coming into this new and they will buy into the fact, well, oh, I have a distributor. They're going to put it out all these places and that's going to be great. Well, distributors are very expensive. You take a huge amount of money out of your margin and they get paid for them. Right. Also, a lot of the major distributors that everybody is most familiar with, they have, you have to full time manage all the chargebacks that you're going to get because they mm -hmm. will charge back 
all the time. And it's if literally there are companies that exist. They all they do is provide a service for food brands to go through and confirm your invoices and make sure that all those chargebacks were correct and get rebates on the ones that weren't. But literally that's wow. There are some companies that's all they do. It's a major problem. You have to really keep your eye on the ball and you have to understand the limitations with a distributor, what they are going to do, what they're not going to do. And my recommendation is that you don't count on anybody who doesn't have skin in this game. So whoever it is, if they're not highly, highly motivated to move your product, then you have to do it, right? Mm -hmm. So in our situation, for our brands, we're commissional. And we are fully managed. So there's a lot of work in there. We have fixed costs for that client, every single client. So we're not messing around here. We're going to get it. We're going to make sure that product sells on the shelf because we're only going to cover our expenses and make money if we're performing at a very high level. So that holds us very accountable. That gives our clients some peace of mind, knowing that we're a partner. We're not, we're in this with them. We have skin in the same game that they're in, right? And so... I think that when new brands are looking to get into distribution, get into the marketplace, they want to make sure that their partners either have skin in the game with them, they have, they have a reason to be highly motivated to push their product, or they have a plan to do it themselves. And you can hire your own merchandisers, you can hire your own marketing teams, you can hire your own um, people to go and have relationships with these buyers. So I just think you should try to control every single variable that you can and don't outsource this so much that you've outsourced to people that don't have skin in the game. And that's what, that's what happens with the distributors. Let's say that you have a distributor and you sell coffee. Okay. And now you want coffee beans on the, on the shelf and you go into one of these major distributors and they have 55 brands that they are distributing. For coffee beans on the shelf. How do you differentiate yourself so that they're going to be motivated, highly, highly motivated to make sure your shell, your product is stocked properly, your product is getting reordered, your product is in demand at that retailer? How are you going to do that with a partner who's selling 55 competing products on the same shelf? Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen. You can't. You can use them for distribution. That's fantastic. Go ahead. But have a plan of your own. You're responsible to move this product. They're not going to do it for you. That's a good point. And so that's, very good that's, point. Why, that's why we have the system. That's why I built the system. Because I knew restaurant owners do not have the bandwidth to do this. They don't have the bandwidth to, to run really successful restaurants, open more locations, be very successful at what they do, and then do all of this. Because it is literally a full-time job to handle all these moving parts with a cpg launch yeah and we say we say restaurant owners you're you're probably putting in anybody who's got a a brick and mortar front like a brewery has a pub or coffee shop has yeah coffee shop roastery okay coffee are great i mean coffee shops that have especially if they have their own their own roasts they have their Mm -hmm. own proprietary methods things that that are those are really good opportunities because if you're local, you have a good following, you've proven that you have a product that has, you know, consumer demand, you have a very good opportunity to partner with a retailer. They love to promote local brands. They love to promote these new products if they're, as long as you're bringing something to the table, right? Yeah, absolutely. But what uh, you bring into the table is the question you should be asking yourself. How are you? It's not enough to have a really great product. 
it's ha- you have to be how am I going to how am I going to bring value to the marketplace in the retail sector? And what's really great is this coffee shop that has you know one or two locations can scale to get into 500 doors, a thousand doors over the next couple of years and enjoy a tremendously profitable revenue stream mm-hmm. that can scale their company and it they'll make 10 times more money on that than they would if they opened up another location. Yeah. I'm going to bounce off of that. What What would a coffee shop or a brewery or a winery what do they need to have in their company already kind of in line in order for to make this process successful, whether they, if, whether they use you or they try to do it on their own before they move forward to that point? I think to start with, you, you want to make sure that you have the capacity to scale for manufacturing. So however you're producing your product, whoever your partners are for sourcing, I have, I've talked to a gal just a couple of days ago that's sourcing her coffee out of is it Ecuador? I think it's Ecuador. And she has, she's basically, we had a conversation, kind of did some coaching with her, and she's basically bringing this product in large scale, getting commitments for the next three years so that she's very ready to go to produce this product for retail. So, um, so those are things that are important. Have your, have your sourcing in place of whoever's, however your product is going to need to be produced. The second thing would be packaging. So, Good packaging design doesn't happen on your Canva. (laughs) It doesn't happen in just somebody who's a great graphic designer and they're really good at making things pretty. That's not good enough. You need a CPG-specific packaging designer. There are are certain things that need to happen on your packaging. So you're literally, I always hold up my phone and go, like, you have this much space. You have an eyeline, right? Mm -hmm. That's it. When those consumers are scanning a shelf, that's what you get, you get that fast. And they mm-hmm. have to notice right. and you have to see it in that eye line. So the packaging is absolutely critical that it's not just pretty, but it's going to tell exactly who you are, what you do, what this product is, gets attention. It looks premium. New brands coming into the marketplace are not going to compete against Folgers or, you know, all these. You're not going to be able to compete on price. Never going to happen. You'll never get your prices as low as these big, huge brands, right? So, and they take up the majority of the shelves. So you have to come into the market with something very innovative, very unique, something different and premium. Uh, Otherwise you're going to have trouble Mm -hmm. because like I said, no new and emerging brand is going to compete on price. It's it's impossible. Um, so you have to be competitive on your pricing, but you want to come in with a product. With, I always say, let's balance novelty and familiar. So when we look at new products for market, we say, how, how novel is it? How different? How unique? And versus familiar. It's familiar enough that somebody's going to feel comfortable purchasing it. But we have to be novel enough or we're not going to get their attention. So that product sitting on the shelf behind me, the milkshakes. Yes. That's a really good example of novelty versus familiar. So... Go ahead and describe that since we are non-visual. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it's a milkshake. <laughs> yeah. Soft serve milkshake that has ever been sold in grocery stores because gro- soft serve milkshake, when it's truly soft serve, not chemicals, I'm talking about soft serve ice cream style milkshakes, have not been able to be produced in, produced and sold in grocery stores because they're made, they're done in machines. They're 
churned right then and there, it goes, it's stored at 18 to 23 degrees. That's soft serve that comes out when you're at the local drive-in getting your milkshake, right? So that was a big problem because my clients, they are famous for their milkshakes, their restaurant. So their milkshake product, we, we were like, how can we, we really, they really wanted to go to market with a milkshake. We really wanted to help them. But, you know, the reality is that's grocery stores are not going to change our temperature. So we had to be able to produce a product that could be stored at negative six for the grocery stores. And production is going to be negative 20, at least sometimes down to negative 99. So we had to solve that problem. We solved it. We have a patent pending on that packaging. We created a pouch system that has an air barrier inside that allows us to preserve that soft serve texture. All the consumer has to do is pull it out of the pouch put it in the microwave for 30 seconds and they can stir it and have this delicious soft serve milkshake just like they would get at the drive-in restaurant. So we hit the novelty factor because it's the first one of its kind <laughs> and it's familiar enough. People know what a milkshake tastes like. They know that it's they're going to most likely enjoy it. So they're not afraid to make that purchase. So when, when customers are coming to the market with a product, whether it's coffee, whether it's you know a new smoothie, whatever it is, if they can find a way to make it novel, different, interesting, it's a new flavor. Um, I think they just came out with a new flavor quotes like tamarind is really popular this year. There's, there's different ways that you can get attention with things that are different and unique that you're not coming to the shelf with the same thing that's already on there by 500 other brands. So novelty, but familiar enough that people are going to recognize it. Okay. Right. That's, that's, that's- Great explanation. And you've mentioned a few things, which is you you helped me with my segue. Thank you. You mentioned innovation and some problem solving. And we're going to talk a little bit, probably geek out a little bit on something the two of us share is our, uh, our structures in the, in the version of a workshopping type of structures we use for problem solving and for just idea creation. And you use that in two different places. You said one is for your package creations getting different innovative mm-hmm. ideas and then also for just kind of internal problem solving with your team when it comes to whatever project you're on. And I think that milkshake case study you just gave us is a really good place where you probably did use some of these techniques and techniques. Would you like to talk about that a little bit and how, how that's, how this workshopping system works for you? So we use it in different ways. So, and there's another product I'm working on right now. I just, before I got on this podcast, I was talking to a manufacturer about it. So because we want to preserve in a way that doesn't require high heat. So we had to problem solve for that, right? Because we didn't want to ruin our product with too much heat, but yeah, we want it to be shelf stable. Big problem there. So how do we solve that problem? And we, we've come up with a solution. Um, but how we get to those solutions frequently is I will host workshops where we will bring different minds to the table. People that are good at what they do, they already know this side of it. They already know the, the challenges that we'd face. They understand in this case, they understand how to pasteurize food for shelf stability, right? (laughs) On the other hand, we bring in people that don't deal in this arena and bring them all together into a Zoom call. And we do usually a mural board this. And we bring them together and we just get ideas going. We start asking really crazy questions. And the idea is, what would be crazy here? What could we do that's really, really big picture? This doesn't seem like it's ever been done before. And then we kind of funnel that down into maybe there's some kernels of ideas here that could potentially work 
And then we go to into testing mode and we start trying some of these things and some of them are crazy. And I will tell you that that happened with milkshakes. The milkshakes were a little crazy. Like you can't, we tried chemical additives. We tried um, different kinds of syrups. We tried a lot of ingredient add-ins. None of them were. And then we tried different ways of packaging. Nothing really worked. And um, my, the one final idea that came out with this air barrier method came from actually my own kid. My daughter is, my daughter is a a doctor. She's a, she's in her undergraduate degree. She's a pediatrician and a, and an ER doctor. And her undergraduate degree was in microbiology. And so she's smart, but she's never dealt with food packaging at all. But she is the one who said, what if you tried this? And we tried this method. Is that me? It sounds like I just, um, we tried this method that she had kind of come up with because we were doing this workshopping type of a style of, of problem solving. And it was the key. It was the answer. We have these beautiful pouches now that are keeping this product preserved and delicious. And, and we didn't have to add any chemicals and it's just a great product. That's great. And you said your daughter was in medical and microbiology. She had her undergraduate degree in microbiology. Biology. Now, okay. yeah, now she's a pediatrician and an ER doctor. Oh, that's awesome. I can definitely um, parallel with that. I came from, I'm a a molecular biologist myself and plant biology. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and this is where I really discovered this workshopping technique because to me, it was the scientific method with a human element thrown in. And you Mm -hmm. mentioned that, you know, you bring in people who understand the challenges, but these methods is really nice because it normalizes uh, everybody's thinking equally uh, Mm -hmm. through, through the system, you don't, you kind of get rid of what I call the hippo, the highest paid person with an opinion. Those are people who never stop right. talking. And also, it also normalizes the introvert, the person who never really says anything, but you get it all out. You get it all equally there. And they're all, you know, equal, um, very useful uh, things you may never get out of them. Mm-hmm. I use the same way and with, with, with a team, with maybe like a, a brewery uh, with their team or a coffee shop with their team is the employees typically understand challenges differently than the owner because the owner is out doing stuff or right. getting pulled in and understanding. So I pulled them together in a room through these very similar workshops and the employees understand challenges differently. They put them up there and as often the owner will be like, huh, I never thought of it that way. Or, oh, mm-hmm. that's the real problem. So you get to this and you get this nice focus and it happens. I mean, you take extra time, but you get these nice focus um, actionables at the end, mm-hmm. really, I mean, even if you're coming up with crazy different bag designs, in the end, it all kind of filters down in a matter of two to three hours and you really kind right. of get something moving. So, yeah, well, we both learned this from people. But, yeah. Another example of this is our scones. So we have a scones product coming out. And when mm-hmm. we first, with this client, we were going to do a fully baked uh, a scone that would be sold frozen and then slacked in the in-store bakeries, right? Like that seemed like a logical way to do this. As we progressed, we couldn't get that product to be shelf stable and still be as fresh and delicious and moist and tender as it was right out of the oven. Well, mm-hmm. I was so focused on this is what we're doing. This is our product. It's a fully baked frozen scone. I was R&Ding the heck out of the frozen side of it, adding, you know, humectants and shelf stabilizers. And how can we do this to really make this a great product and preserve it? And, it, and somebody else in one of these little innovation workshops said, tell me about the process how do they get and it Mm -hmm. sure enough they started out they make these scone balls basically the dough balls and they freeze them and then they use those every day to in the restaurant 
in the cafe, they sell them, they freeze them and they're frozen balls. They stick them in the oven and bake them. It's like, yeah, they're speaking my language. And Finding <laughs> the bottlenecks in the process. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's how, and you know what? The client loves it. The product is beautiful. It's coming out very, very soon. We should be in, hopefully in production by next month. Uh, but we would have kept banging our heads against the wall because we had, if I hadn't really brought in these other outside perspectives to say, what's a better way to do this? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, you just yep. don't know where it's going to come from. And it's really neat when it does. And it's, I get a lot of joy out of it watching these. And some of the times the baristas, they're kids initially, and mm -hmm. they come in and have these micro aha moments like, oh, I could do that. It's, it's really cool. I get excited about it. I kind of keep, I kind of keep it all pinned up like, you know, I'll do one of these and it looks at me like, what is he doing? Uh, why is a facilitator silently cheering in the corner? Because you discovered something. And so yeah. <laughs> that's what I got out of it. It's kind of neat. But yeah, that, that is a perfect example. Absolutely. Yeah. So mm -hmm. moving on, is there any one thing you, you could tell somebody who wants to move something into product to shelf or to restaurants they could do right now that would be the most beneficial, just like getting that first step? Build your following, build your audience, build your social media platforms, build your following, get a loyal audience engaged because you're going to leverage that to get retailers to pick you up. So if you're, a, if you're a new brand, you're coming in, you have a most, the most exciting beverage product that you've ever heard of. It's everybody loves it. It's fantastic. Okay. You go into a retailer and they don't want to hear that. They, they, okay, great. Tastes. Everybody says their product tastes great. Everybody says their product is the best in class. Everybody says that. Okay. So they hear it 500 times a day. What they care about is what are you going to do for that retailer? What kind of metrics are you going to drive? How are you going to drive sales? How, how is this a proven concept? Well, you're proving your concept by your following the people that are supporting that product. How much are you driving in sales? When you can share those metrics with a retailer, it's going to get their attention and they're more likely to give you a chance. Like when we went to the table with these milkshakes, we didn't go into the, into the negotiations with Albertsons, who was our first partner. They were a fantastic partner for this product. But we didn't go to that table with, hey, we have a milkshake. What do you think? It was, this is how many milkshakes we're already selling. And now we're going to bring it into retail. This is our metric. This is how many consumers we believe we will be able to drive into your stores because you carry this product. This is how we're going to support this product once it's on the shelf. And this is how we're going to continue to drive traffic to both to your, to the Alberton shelf in our product, right? So we're going to bring something to the table for that retailer. For a new brand who's thinking that StPG is a good strategy for them, you need some, you have to be able to tell a story that's going to impress that retailer for them to give you a chance because they have precious real estate. That shelf is valuable and it's going to go to someone who's going to bring value to that brand and that brand. What is important to the retailers? Keeping their customers happy. And what is important to that retailer? Driving and getting new customers into their stores. We can do both. I'll give you an example. We have, we have another division part of our menu to market where we do consumer side marketing. It's an add-on package. Some clients do their own marketing. Other times they need support. When they need the support, our team does a really great job of managing all their social media channels and marketing strategies and press releases and all that kind of stuff. We took a survey. It's on the ground at the stores of people exiting stores because we do all these in-store demo events. 
and we the same survey online and the same survey at restaurants. From those findings, from those results, 71% of people who had tried that milkshake from the store, not the restaurant, but they bought it, they bought the product at the store, 71% said that they heard about it on social media. So we not only brought new customers for the restaurant because we're of social media engagement and getting people excited about this new milkshake product, we brought them new customers for the restaurant. Fantastic. We also brought new, a lot of new customers to that grocery store, new people that are going into that grocery store. That makes us a really great partner for Albertsons. That makes us, or or Kroger or Fred Meyer, anybody, Costco, whoever it is, our role as somebody, as a broker bringing products to market is to be a really solid partner for that retailer. That's what we, that's important because it's, it's a win-win for everybody. Helps our clients move more product. It makes us a really good partner for that retailer. It can, it's going to open more doors. When those retailers give us a 10 doors, five doors, 20 doors, that's a gift. We want to, we want to make sure we leverage that. And so then we can get into a thousand doors, right? So how do you do that? You, be, you have to bring something to the table. And when a new brand is considering this, I think one of the core things that they need to have in place is a following. They need to have enough people getting the attention of their brand, engaging and loyal to their brand, that when they are ready to go to market, they're already going to bring a following into those retail stores. Because That's now you bring it out to your retail partner. So definitely have that story that builds that audience and have kind of the ROI or those metrics to go along with it really is a nice package to move it forward into grocery. Okay. Great, great, great advice. Thank you very much for that. All right. I got a couple more questions. This one is my hardest question. Well, it's important to the show. What is your favorite beverage? Well, have you heard of Jefferson's Oceans? Jefferson's Ocean Whiskey. Jefferson's Oceans Whiskey. I will have to look them up. I'll get it on the show. It is my absolute favorite be- adult beverage is Jefferson's Ocean. And it is a whiskey that they put in barrels and they run it out on the ocean for many, many years, or months, years. I don't know how long it is, but I know that the whiskey is very smooth and I, I love whiskey. So um, it has a very smooth finish. So it has that nice little burn at the end, but it's not too it's really smooth, but it's also a bite. Yeah. I think it's my favorite thing on the planet it's i typically buy i I typically buy jefferson's oceans for clients and anybody else for christmas like my pastor gets it that's my favorite thing and um, so beverages that's my favorite but in day-to-day life i'm kind of a fan of Lacroix. i like Lacroix. very i think it's good and it doesn't have all the bad stuff in it and you can just i drink at least one every day (laughs) all right that's cool i correct you that's awesome so, <laughs> so you have now you have this huge process, and I believe you have kind of put this in a uh, like a sort of a DIY uh, package to some degree. I've put the co-manufacturing process into a course because yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, I get asked all the time. I'm in a lot of networking groups, and it's the number one thing that people get challenged with is finding a co-packer. Number one, how do you find? Um, second of all, how do you even get one to return your call? <laughs> respond to your email or how do you get their attention and how do you come to the table prepared so that if you can get in front of a co-packer a potential co-packing partner how can you make sure that they have the information that 
this is what, let me tell you what typically somebody comes, they pick up the phone, they start calling co-packers and they're very vague. I have a really great um, smoothie or a really great, you know, coffee beverage, or I have a really, whatever it is, they have this product idea. They have a recipe maybe that they're following in the, in their, they're using to create it. None of that is going to work. It's not going to get the attention. You're coming in unprepared. You, you, you're expecting that co-packer to solve all your problems and get you there, and they're not going to do it. They're going to move on to the brand who's coming to the table fully prepared. So in this course, I really talk about, number one, how do you find the right co-packer? But even before that process starts, how do you prepare for those conversations? We have an RFQ process that we go through, and I share this process in the course, and it's a, it's a deep dive into all the elements of that. So commercializing your formulas, and making sure that the sourcing of specialty ingredients is in there so that you're making it easy for that co-packer to do business with. And then all of the legal compliance. So once you have a co-packer, how do you protect yourself, your product? Are you prepared for a recall? Recalls can happen. And how do you protect yourself in those situations? And how do you make sure that these agreements are tight so that, you know, another thing that happens is for smaller brands, they'll get tied in with a manufacturer, a co-man, and that co-man is representing larger brands. Well, now that larger brand, Walmart, it happened, it happened three weeks ago on one of our projects. The co-packer is also packing for a company that sells in Walmart. They had a big order. They're like, we, we're going to bump your project for this one. Ooh. That happens every day. Okay. We, we have a pushback for that. We are prepared for that. We have documentation to protect our clients. So we were able to negotiate through that and make sure our product was produced on time. We didn't get bumped. If you're not prepared for that, you're going to get bumped. You're not going to have, you don't have the leverage that these other brands have. So one of the things that I talk about in the course is how do you get that leverage? How do you protect yourself in those situations and make sure that you're, you're going to have a really solid working relationship with those co-packers? That's win-win for everybody. But the first of it is you got to find them. You got to be prepared when you get to the table for those negotiations. You have to make sure your product is ready. Like you have to have a pretty strong vision in your mind of what this finished product is going to look like because your co-packer can help quite a bit. They have R&D divisions. Typically, they're going to refine things. They're going to take your starting point. And they're going to refine it and get it ready for production. But you can't count on that for a huge amount of it. Um, another risk is you let that co-packer do too much development for your product and now they own it. And now you expand and you want to add a second co-packer or, you know, their plant burns down, you need another back, backup co-packer. Whatever happens, you can't, you, you're stuck. You can't scale now because this co-packer has, it holds your future right there. They own your product. I'm dealing with a, with a new syrup product that we're coming out with. They were using another co-packer. They didn't own the formula. We had to completely start over to R&D that formula to get it to match. That's not an easy thing to do. We, we do it. We've done it. But it's not quick and easy and done in one day. That's a process. So, so there's risks that you can avoid. This course is a very deep dive. It's 10 week, wow. weekly sessions that we're recording because it's a lot of information. So even once you find the co-packer, once you're engaged on that co-packer, how do you manage it? And then how do you prevent problems? So let's talk about the insurance. Let's talk about um, agreements, contracts. Let's talk about distribution because you got to, you're responsible to get it. They're going to go, they're going to go to their doc. 
It's your job to have a truck there ready to go. Where is it going to take it? How are you going to protect it? How do you make sure that those distribution channels are going to protect your product and and go to the right spot and be affordable in the, in the process? So um, those are, and then how do you scale with them? How do you make sure that your product, how do you manage sales versus production? So for example, we go into a production run with a certain amount already pre-sold every time. So we're not, a lot of people do this too. They'll produce the product, they'll be so excited, but they don't have a place to sell it yet. And they think that once they have a product, they're going to have something to sell. Well, mm-hmm. that's wishful thinking and wishes, wishes and hopes and all that is just not a strategy you want to, you want to put Imagine money in. A lot of people think that. Yeah. Yeah. They think, oh, I'm going to get it produced. It's so exciting. Well, not if you don't have somewhere to sell it. So, um, so basically that's one of the things I talk about is how do you kind of balance sales and production for the long term so that you're always kind of ahead of things. And that's great. Uh, that's very valuable for a lot of people. Definitely. And I do believe you, for our listeners, you have a discount for this course. I do 20%. It's a big discount. Thank you very much. I think this will be great. Uh, yeah. So I will have all this information in the show notes. The, the link to the class, the code for the, for the discount. So if you're catching this now, and this seems like something that you're moving into and you really want to take that deep dive, I think it's being taught very well by Gail here. So I, I, I definitely would encourage you guys to benefit from this course and the discount. Thank you. There's another thing on that too, is these first sessions are going to be recorded live. So that's part of the, after this first 10 sessions and the recordings are live, then they'll just go into the module. So they're recorded, you can listen to them. But the reason I mentioned that is because people who are involved in these live sessions, we're going to have Q&A every day, every time we're on that call. So they're going to be able to answer questions. And if there are things that they're dealing with that are even kind of outside the scope of masterclass or the manufacturing, and they're just, if it's related to a CPG strategy, I am really happy to help them while we're on those calls because I want them to get value out of it. I want to see them be successful. And we've solved a lot of problems over the last 12 years of doing this. Um, You know, I I understand what they're going to face and what they might already be facing. And usually there's a solution. I I usually have a way that I can help point them in the right direction of a resource. And so I, I just want to help them be successful. And if they're on the live calls, it's a perfect opportunity to ask questions. It doesn't have to be solely about manufacturing. Well, that's great. You just keep piling on the value here. That's good. Yeah. So you have the opportunity to ask uh, Gail here questions pertaining to your getting into the CPGs and all that. Would Yeah, I'm sure that's worth its, worth its price in gold right there. Thank you. All right. So Gail, this has been super informative. I really hope people... Uh, uh, our beverage industry owners that listen to this are really taking this to heart. Listen to real close. You gave us a lot of great information on how you take things from menu to market, the innovation pieces in between. And that last piece of just come fully prepared is, was, I think it really is, is how, and how you, you get fully prepared. You give us a lot of steps to think about. I really appreciate your time. This is, this has been very good. This has been very, very informative. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's been, it's been fun. All right. Welcome. Thanks a lot for showing up and uh, we'll talk again soon. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Thank you very much. Bye. All right. Thank you for listening to Harvest of Poor, the business of beverages with Matthew Shep. Check the show notes for our guest contact information and connect with Matthew Shep on LinkedIn today.